be here through the book of Nehemiah. Great, great book on letting the Lord lead. Great book on leadership. A great book on dealing with difficulties and problems and vision, etc. Real quick reminder, and I know we've done this because we've gone through the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, but sometimes we have a tendency to forget when the Jews were taken into captivity, they came back in three different waves. First one came back under Zerubbabel. They came back and they started rebuilding the temple. The next group came back under Ezra, who got the group in spiritual shape. The third group came back under Nehemiah, and Nehemiah is getting the walls built. The walls symbolize physical protection, obviously, for the city of Jerusalem. But more than that, it also shows the nation being back in order and being protected by the Lord. So Nehemiah is working on the walls here. Now, with Nehemiah, the first couple chapters, we kind of saw Nehemiah's heart, a man of prayer, a man of vision. Then we saw Nehemiah's leadership skills in Nehemiah chapter 3. Now, Nehemiah chapter 4, he's starting to deal with opposition. Opposition from the outside. Remember, the two bad guys in the book of Nehemiah are Sanballat and Tobiah. They will constantly be a thorn in the side of Nehemiah. Comes to a real head next week in Nehemiah chapter 6. But for right here, right now, Nehemiah chapter 4, Nehemiah is dealing with Sanballat and Tobiah. But now, tonight in Nehemiah chapter 5, he's dealing with problems from the inside. So if you weren't with us, I encourage you to get a copy of last week's message. Listen to it online and grab the CD. It was dealing with difficult people. What's the biblical way to handle that? And that's what we talked about last week. Here in Nehemiah chapter 5, now we're dealing with problems on the inside. There's no push or pressure from the unbelieving world. These are the group that's supposed to be working together. Now this is difficult. This is sad. I, I see this all the time as a pastor. People that claim to be born-again believers getting into such a frustrating argument with another believer that they can't even be in the same room together at the same time. I don't know how many times over the years I've had somebody come up to me and say, Hey, I just want to let you know if so-and-so is going to be going out to that church, I'm not going to be going out to that church. How frustrating is that? How sad is that? Hopefully things can be worked out. Sometimes you can do everything biblically right and it can't be worked out. We talked about that last week. But so often, what would happen if we would just handle things like believers are supposed to handle them? You know, in the book of Colossians, in Colossians chapter 4, there was two women in the early church that weren't getting along. Paul, in this epistle, just called them out by name. Can you imagine for all of eternity, when you get to heaven and you meet those two women, you're like, oh... You're the two women that were fighting 2,000 years ago in the church at Colossia. Did you ever work it out? For all of eternity, you're going to know. And so the way Paul dealt with it is he said, Hey, body of Christ, these two women are getting along. Help them. Now, the difference 2,000 years ago is a lot different than it is today. See, 2,000 years ago, if you had a run-in with another believer, you really couldn't go someplace else. That's the way the church was set up. And that's why you see all these passages on how to work things out and how the church is supposed to deal with it. Nowadays, today, if you go to a church and something just rubs you the wrong way, you're just going to go someplace else. There literally is a church almost every corner, and we'll just keep shopping around until we find the one that we like the most. And what happens is with something like that is we don't get to the root of the issue and say, as believers, how are we supposed to handle it? We think we're doing good by not dealing with it. Well, it didn't turn into a split and a division, but the problem is it plants a seed in your heart of bitterness and it's never taken care of. See, God says you're supposed to love each other enough to say, we're going to get to the bottom of this and work this out. Nowadays, let's just go someplace else. So what you see here in Nehemiah chapter 5, Dealing with problems on the inside. 
So what were the problems they were dealing with? Let's find out. Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1. And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were also some who said, We have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's taxes on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. Indeed, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been bought into slavery. It's not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and our vineyards. What was happening was three problems. Number one, there are so many people now coming to Jerusalem to work on this project, they didn't have enough food. You see that in verse 2. Number two, they didn't have any money. You see that in verse 3. Since there's so many extra people now, they're trying to find food. They can't. We're mortgaging our lands and vineyards because we have to buy grain. There's a famine. The prices have gone up. So the second problem is there's a famine. There's no money. And number three, you see in verse 4, the taxes are too high. So there's this huge problem. There's too many mouths to feed since we're all working on the wall. We have no money to buy the food since there's a famine. And the taxes are way too high. High. Now, this is not a problem to deal with the wall. This is not a problem with Sanbal and Tobiah. This is an inside problem. And this inside problem, verse 1, a great outcry. That word for great, you can't use enough words to describe how great that word great is. The best way I can use to describe that, if you look in the original Hebrew, that's the word, that's the adjective used to describe the sun when it was created. So big, huge problem. So this was not just a couple little people coming and saying, hey, we need some food. This was almost a work stoppage, riot revolt. We have no food. We have no money. In fact, we have to sell our children into slavery because we can't even feed them and take care of them. This is a huge problem. What's Nehemiah's response? Verse 6, and I became very angry. When I heard their outcry in these words, I appreciate the honesty of that verse. It's not wrong to be angry. Please remember this point. I know we made this point last week and it bears repeating. Anger in and of itself is not a sin. Please remember that. According to Ephesians chapter 4, the Bible says, In your anger, do not sin. So you're allowed to get angry. It's what you do when you're angry that determines whether it's a sin or not. There is righteous anger. If you watch the news and you see the way things are being presented and the way the world is going, there is an anger inside of you that this is not my father's world. This is not what he wanted. There's an anger when you hear about kids being hurt and abused. There's an anger when you see the world going downhill morally. There's an anger when you look sometimes across the church and you stop and you say, wait a second, this is what we're doing as believers? Now, what are you going to do with that anger? I remember hearing years ago at a pastor's conference, remember, our job is to equip the sheep, not whip the sheep. And I used to, when I used to get angry, it's like, I'm going to start whipping people. That's the only way to get things going. No, Nehemiah is angry. It's not a sin. It's what you do while you're angry that determines whether it's a sin. Because take a look at verse 7. After serious thought, after serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and the rulers and said to them, Each of you is exacting usury from his brother. Usury is high interest. So I called a great assembly against them. Now let's stop here for a second. There's a lot in verse 7. A lot in verse 7. What do you see first off? Number one, you do not see a quick response from Nehemiah. 
He didn't just jump right off on this. How often do you, when you get angry or upset at somebody, immediately respond? Do you say things that you wish you could take back? You text something, you write something, you post something, fill in the blank, I don't know. And as the words are coming to your mouth, you're saying, why am I saying this? So the first thing you see with Nehemiah is this is not a quick response. He is not allowing the flesh to get the best of him. A lot of wisdom there. Have you ever, in the midst of anger and emotion, and your flesh was boiling, have you ever really made a good decision at that moment? Have you and your spouse ever said, that's the best conversation we've ever had when we were yelling at each other? Boy, that was really fruitful for the Lord. Of course not. Nothing good comes out of it. So first thing you see is no quick response. Take some time. Pray over it. Think over it. Now that word there in verse 7, after serious thought, that's a really interesting word in Hebrew. This is the only place in the Bible where it's used in this context. Every other place in the Bible, it's used in the context of a king or queen ruling or reigning. So what this literally means in the Hebrew, Nehemiah is stopping and saying, what am I going to allow to rule me at this time? Am I going to allow my anger to rule me? Or am I going to allow the Lord to rule me? Am I going to allow my fleshly response to rule me? Or am I going to allow God's word to rule me? See, you have to make a split-second decision. When you get worked up about something, right then and there, you've got to decide. Am I going to respond in the flesh? Am I going to respond in the spirit? What am I going to allow to rule me? Because I am the king over this. For This is what the word is literally meaning. I am the king over this castle. And I need to determine what rule I'm going to do with this. I'll think that through for a second. Now, what happens at this point is I usually hear from somebody that says something, well, I couldn't control myself. I used to hate it when people used to say I can't control myself. I have become passive-aggressive as I've gotten older. So if you come up to me now and say that I can't control myself, I love it when you tell me that. Because now I can just take you right to Galatians 5, 22 and 23 and say, did you know the last fruit of the Spirit is self-control? And so therefore I can say, hey, so if you can't control yourself, now do it with a smile. What you're really telling me is you're really not allowing the Holy Spirit to rule and reign at you right now. Because that is a fruit of the Spirit, is self-control. Number two, when you say, I can't control myself, and you say something to the effect of, well, they just got me all worked up. Hey, let's talk about that one for a second. Did you know in James chapter 1, it says that no one can lead you into a sin, that you choose yourself. Whether you want let sin control you. Now, they may have encouraged your sin. They may have poked and prodded. But ultimately, you are the ones responsible for your words and actions. So therefore, when you come back and say, well, I couldn't help myself. They did this. Sorry, that doesn't line up with the scriptures. The scriptures are telling me right here in verse 7 that I'm the king of this castle. And I get to choose what I'm going to let rule and reign. And if I choose to go in the flesh, I'm going to run into a lot of problems. If I choose to respond in the spirit, things will work out okay. Now, how do we know that he responded properly? Because look at verse 7. Each of you is exacting usury from his brother. You may not realize it. He is quoting scriptures. According to Leviticus 25 and according to Exodus chapter 22, the Jews were not allowed to charge interest to each other when borrowing money and loaning money to each other. God says, your brethren, why are you doing this to each other? Why are you trying to make a quick buck off your brethren? Jesus went one step further in the Gospels. He said, if somebody asks you for something, just give it to them. Don't hope for anything in return. 
So what happens here is he's angry, but he doesn't allow his anger to control him. Next thing you see is that he does not respond right away. The next thing you see is he thinks it through. He decides what's going to rule and reign in his life. And then lastly, what does he do in verse 7? He responds with Bible. He responds in a biblical way. As we've been saying a lot out here, often do we share, well, I think or I believe, I don't care what you think or believe, just like I hope you don't care what I think or believe. What does the Bible tell us to do? That is always going to be the best advice. Wow, look what we can learn from Nehemiah in dealing with problem people and also situations on the inside. Now, some great points right there. Has anybody got any quick questions, comments about that? Dealing with these situations, dealing with these problems before we move on. All right. Yeah, sorry, Mark. Just going on to number seven. You know how you say you're not supposed to talk to yourself. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I looked that up. And like I said, that's where this word is different than the other ones. It's a very interesting Hebrew word because I use that point a lot. There's a passage back when uh, Rehoboam was king where he said that I thought unto myself. That's a different word than what we're dealing with right here. Like I said, this word literally means what am I going to allow rule and reign? So he stopped, he thought, and we can tell he went back to the Bible because in verse 7 he's quoting scripture there about you're not allowed to do it. So I agree with what you're saying, but when you look at the full pattern of it, he's actually going back to the Bible and gaining wisdom from that as well too. So I guess the way I would look at it is I'm dealing with the situation. It's like, okay, Lord, what am I supposed to do? And I'm thinking to myself of all the Bible verses I know, I'm thinking a best way to biblically handle this situation. Where the other times you see with other people is it's almost like they're having a conversation with themselves. And next thing you know, and you've heard me say this before, the most dangerous person you could ever talk to is yourself. Because you will always agree with yourself. You always think yourself as the most wise, wonderful person in the world. This carries a little bit different of a context there. So that's a good point that you brought up. Anybody else have anything? Tina. Mm-hmm. He did. Go well, a little bit. What you're going to see here, and that's a good segue to what we're talking about. He does do this in verse seven in front of everybody, and look why he does it. Verse eight, and I said to them, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. So. We've got ourselves out of slavery. Now, indeed, will you even sell your brethren? So we could just got out of slavery, and we're going to go back into slavery to each other? Or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. Yes, what's going to happen here is he grabs everybody together, and we're going to talk about this together, and then he's going to bring the priests in, and he's going to make everybody take an oath. Now, I think this is a really interesting point. What would happen if we had a problem, and we would just stop and biblically say, Let's get everybody in the same room at the same time who's having an issue with this. And let's pray first. Let's get the Bible out and let's work through this together. That just sounds crazy, doesn't it? But isn't that the best way to handle something? Now, the problem with what we have a tendency to do today is that we have a problem with something and we go talk to 10 other people first before we go to the person that we have an issue with. We don't really stop and give it over to the Lord. And to be honest, we don't care what the Bible has to say about it. But he gets everybody together as the leader, as the governor, and he says, why are you doing this? And look at the response, verse 8. Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. I used to try to pull answers out of people. And I started realizing that never, ever works. 
So now my go-to question, if I find somebody doing something that just doesn't seem to me in my mind to line up with the Bible, and it just does not seem to glorify God in any way whatsoever, this is not passive-aggressive. This is just honest. I asked them, I said, so when you prayed over this, why do you think the Lord led you to do this? Generally, the answer is silence. Or I'll say, hey, when you've been praying and fasting over this and searching the Bible for an answer, do you think this is where the Lord led you to go? What are you supposed to say to that? So every now and then I'll get a really honest response of, oh, I haven't really prayed over it. Okay, well then why would you do anything without seeking the Lord? Or why would you do something that goes against the Bible? A lot of the times you see verse 8, you just see this, silence. There is no answer back to this. What's the answer they're supposed to say? Well, we really enjoy making money selling our Jewish brother and sister to each other as slaves. It's a great way to make money. No, that's an awful answer. There is no answer. So verse 9, that I said, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? So he says, now look what he does. He calls them out, gives them a chance to respond. They choose not to. Verse 9, you're not doing what God tells you to do. Verse 10, I also with my brethren and my servants am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. Then he says, I'm going to set the example. I'm lending them money and grain. I'm not asking for anything in return. Verse 11, restore now to them even this day their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses. Also a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine and the oil. So you have charged them. So now he says, this is what I want you to do. Look at the biblical way he handles this. He calls them out, gives them an opportunity to respond. Then says, this is not what God would want you to do. Then he says, look at the example I'm setting. And then verse 11, he stops and says, this is what we need to do. Wow. How much better would things go if we would do the same thing? We'd go up to somebody and say, why are you doing this? This does not line up with scripture. Wait for their response. Then come to them and say, this is what God wants us to do. This is the path I'm walking. And this is now what you're supposed to go do. Look at their response. Verse 12. So they said, we will restore it. And we will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Now, this is kind of what Tina was saying, maybe a little bit of coercion. So make sure that Nehemiah says, I want to make sure you guys mean this. Verse 12. Then I called the priests. So I'm going to bring in the priests now. And you're going to tell the priests what you just told me. And required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. So now you guys promise you're going to do this. So I'm going to make you promise in front of the spiritual leadership. And then you're going to take this oath. And then verse 13, then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did according to this promise. What an amazing biblical way to handle problems. You get angry, but you don't let your anger control you. You go and you decide, what am I going to let rule me on this? Then you go find out what the Bible has to say. You call everybody together. Give them a chance to respond. Then says, this is what the Lord wants us to do. Now I'm asking you, are you going to do it? And now I'm going to keep you accountable to that action. Because you told me that's what you're going to do. That's the way the system is supposed to work. Now, why don't we do this? Oh, there's so many reasons. We don't like confrontation. Well, the Bible says if you love somebody, sometimes you get in their face a little bit and say, I care enough about you to say this is wrong. Why else don't we do it? Well, who am I to say anything? I have issues in my own life. 
My response back to that is truth is always truth. So if you know that they're doing something wrong, you need to speak truth to them. And number two, if there's something in your life you know you shouldn't be doing, then this is probably a wake-up call to you to say, I can't go correct them because I feel so guilty and shamed by what I do. So Lord, help me. Nehemiah does such a wonderful job here of leading this. It's just absolutely amazing. What happens next, verse 14? Moreover, from that time that I was appointed to their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year into the 32nd year, so he was governor for 12 years, of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor brethren ate the governor's provisions. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine, besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but and I did not do so because of fear of God. He says, listen, the people before me, They did tax them. They did take their food. They did all this. He goes, but I'm not going to do that. Why? Verse 15, because of the fear of God. This is the second time he mentions the fear of God. He also mentioned it back in verse 9. Should you not walk in the fear of our God? That's a great, great passage. i got a couple verses I want to show you there. Dustin, can you put that slide up? That phrase, fear of God. It's a really interesting word. And what I did is I just went to Proverbs. Because that phrase, fear of the Lord, is mentioned 14 different times in the book of Proverbs. And I just picked a few verses out here. First off, you have to understand what the word fear means. This is not the tremble in fear. It can carry that connotation. Depending on how it is used, depends how the word is supposed to be mean. When it's used in this context, it means a healthy, divine respect for God. It means I fear the Lord and Him so much that I respect what He has asked me to do, so therefore I will do it. Now, the reason these guys weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing, because they had no fear of God. The reason Nehemiah did the right thing is because he had a fear of God. Right there is about the simplest teaching point you overhear. If you do not have a fear of God, you'll do whatever you want. If you have a fear of God, you'll stop and say, what does the Lord want me to do? Now think about this. So therefore, when you run into somebody who's doing something that they should not be doing, they call themselves a Christian, and you say to them, this is not God's word, this is not God's plan, this is not what he wants, and they don't care, what are they saying? I don't fear God. I don't respect him. I don't respect what he has to say. So when somebody comes up to me and wants to tell me how much they love the Lord and love the Bible and love God, but they're going to go do whatever they want? No, you don't. So look at these verses. Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. If you really want to be the person God has called you to be, you will have a healthy respect for the Lord. It will go through your mind. I probably shouldn't watch that program because God doesn't want me to. I fear God and respect that. I will watch what I say to my kids, to my spouse, to my coworkers, because I have a fear of God. A healthy respect for who he is. And I want knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. So when you go to somebody and you give them God's word and they don't want to listen to it, the Bible says they're a fool. Now, the word fool to us is really not that much of an insult. If you go back and read through the Bible, fool is one of the harshest things you could call somebody back during Bible times. Because a fool is somebody who says, I don't care what God has to say. It's a big deal. Next one, Proverbs eight thirteen: The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance in the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. So when I hate evil, I hate what's on my TV sometimes. I hate what I hear on the radio sometimes. I hate what I see in the news. I hate sometimes what people choose to wear outside. I hate the way the world is going. I hate that evil. It doesn't mean I hate the people, but I hate the evil. That's the fear of the Lord. 
Because I realize I care more about what God thinks than I do about the acceptance in the world. Now, that's a tough one. We think of that more of the kindergarten, first grade peer pressure type thing, don't we? But as adults, as we get older, we also care what people think. And so we have to stop and say, wait a second, here's a moral issue that the world has said is okay. But I can't say it's okay because I have a fear of the Lord and I need to hate that evil. I need to hate that. Next one, Proverbs 14, 27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. Just imagine what would happen if you'd live your life in the fear of the Lord, a healthy respect for God. Do you not think that you would stay away from the snares of death? Take a look at some of the guys in the Old Testament that choose not to walk in the fear of the Lord. Samson comes to mind. We used this example before. Think of Samson. Parents, if you have kids at home, what good thing could you bring out of Samson's life to say, kids, be like Samson? Obviously, you don't want them to be with Philistine prostitutes, right? You don't want them lying. You don't want them doing this. You don't want them doing that. You can't. Samson is a man that did not have a lot of fear of the Lord. And so what happened? He ran into the snares of death. Last one, Proverbs 19.23. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and he who has it will abide in satisfaction. He will not be visited with evil. See, look at that. He who abides in it will have satisfaction. When you choose to live your life in the healthy respect of the Lord, there is a spiritual peace and satisfaction in your life. What happens, what I see is this. When people choose to make a decision that does not line up with Scripture, they think the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. And they think they will be happier with that choice. Well, even though it goes against God's word, but this just feels good. There will be no satisfaction. And you do not walk in the fear of the Lord. There will be none. The fear of the Lord, a healthy respect for Him, keeps you on the right path. It truly does. And there has to be an understanding that we will die one day, stand before God, and be accountable for our actions. We will stand before the Lord. Now, non-believers will stand before the Lord in the great white throne judgment, where their works will be judged and they'll be sentenced to hell. But even as believers, we will stand before the Lord in something called the judgment seat of Christ. Now, this is not a judgment of whether we're saved or not. We're already saved. But it's a judgment of our actions. How did we live for the Lord? Did we let the fear of the Lord guide us and say, Listen, I can't do that. I can't say that. I can't watch that. Because I know God's watching. And to be honest, I care more about what He thinks than anybody else. Or, I have to go do this. Because if I don't go do this, I'm disobeying God. And I have a fear of the Lord. A healthy respect for Him. And I want to do what's right. I highly encourage you to go home tonight and really pray over this. Meditate on this. And think about your actions in your life. Are they done with the idea of the fear of the Lord? That we are accountable to Him in what we do and what we say. Anybody have any quick questions, comments over this concept of the fear of God guiding us and leading us? I hope it does not come across as a trembling and afraid of Him. That is part of it. But it comes across mostly as we're supposed to respect him as who he is. Yeah, Karen.
there's two things I say to that, if you didn't hear the question there. What Karen is basically saying here, somebody says they have a fear of the Lord, but they kind of pick and choose what they want to believe. I, I could go two different directions on that. First direction I could go is, well, how do we explain these verses then? Where Jesus said, the whole counsel of God's word is about me. How do we explain where Paul said that all scripture is God-breathed? Because there's this constant repetition from Genesis to Revelation that this is the entirety of God's word. So therefore, when it says all scriptures God breathed, I believe it means all scriptures God breathed. When the Bible says that the whole book is written about Jesus, I think it means the whole book is written about Jesus. So that's the one point I would say is, how do you then explain these verses that says the whole Bible is God's word? Number two, and this is, I mean this sincerely, I would say, I would love to talk to you. Would you please write down every verse that you feel is taken out of context or translation error or something along that type of line and I will go buy you lunch and you bring your Bible and I'll bring my Bible and let's sit down and go through those verses together. And I mean this sincerely because if you think there's a verse that's outdated or out of context or something, I want to know about it. And I mean that sincerely. And what I've noticed with that is most of the time... Well, I don't have a certain verse I'm thinking of or something like that. Or if they do have a passage, you get to sit down and say, let's explore God's word together. But to answer your question about how do you convince them, I don't know if you can convince them. They have to trust and believe that it's God's word. If they choose not to trust and believe that, you can't make them see it. But there's too many scriptures that are saying all God's word is God breathed. I don't know how we get around that. All means all. Anybody else have any other questions here about the fear of the Lord? Megan. Yeah, Re- Revelation warns about do not add or take away anything from this book. Yeah. Yep. And if they do, then... Bad things happen. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's how it words in the original Greek, but bad things happen if you, if you try to mess with God's word. <laughs> Anybody else have anything ever here for the fear of the Lord? Listen, the fear of the Lord is a good, good thing. It is difficult for us to understand this concept because when we hear the word fear we think of tremble and what this is is that you respect so much your heavenly father that if he says do it you do it if he says don't do it don't we've had lots of uh, foster kids come through our, our house and we've had some before that have come little ones that had not had any training in any way whatsoever and if you would stop and say hey listen it's time to go to the bathroom, get your teeth brushed, and go to bed, they hit the floor right where they're at, and they start screaming, hitting, hitting you, throwing things, punching walls, kicking the door, picking up toys, anything you can absolutely imagine, because you just simply said, it's time to go to bed. And so you get them in bed, and they will scream at the top of their lungs, and they will yell, they will scream, they will whatever. Now, that's happened before. There's a lot of thoughts that go through my mind, and some of them are not biblical at that moment. But there are lots of things. And the first time that happened, my wife, uh, Dawn, pointed to my boys and said, Boys, this is what happens when you don't raise a child in Jesus. Right there. There is no fear of authority. There's no respect. There's no nothing in any way whatsoever. And you know what? You take that little fit that happens in a kid, and now they're going to be a 40-year-old adult. And God says, guess what? That action's wrong. Well, I don't think it's wrong. And I'm going to sit here and throw my little spiritual temper tantrum. And that's what I'm going to do. It doesn't change. 
There has to be a fear and a respect of the authority of God. And I just want to encourage you, and I'm going to keep pushing this point here for a little bit. Don't ever make a decision where you say, basically, I don't care what God thinks. Now, you may never verbalize that. But what you're doing sometimes in your actions is saying, I know God's word says to do this, but I'm going to choose to do that. And what you're really saying is, I don't care. That is going to get you in so much trouble. It's not worth it. Once again, these first group of guys, there was no fear of God. The second, Nehemiah said, I have a fear of God. That's why I can't do this. Now, what else did Nehemiah do then? He said he was not going to take any burdens or lay any burdens on them. Verse 16, Indeed, I also continued the work on this wall, and we did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered there for the work. Verse 16, we kept the work going. I always want to encourage you, body of Christ. Satan will do everything he possibly can to deter you from the work that God has given you. He will do everything he can. He will use people on the outside. Sambalat, Tobiah, chapter 4. He will use people on the inside, chapter 5. He will do whatever he can to make you stop doing the progress and project that God has called you to do. Do not ever allow that to get to you. You stay focused. You move forward. Verse 17, at my table were 150 Jews and rulers besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Nehemiah just didn't preach it. He lived it. He took care of 150 people to make sure they had enough food and drink. Verse 18, Now that which was prepared daily was one ox, six choice sheep. Also fowl were prepared for me, and once every ten days an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provisions because the bondage was heavy on this people. Nehemiah said, Listen, I could have done my own thing. I could have asked for more. I could have demanded more. And he goes, I didn't. I actually used the resources God gave me, and I focused on the people and took care of 150 of them. Verse 19, Remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I've done for this people. Nehemiah says, God, I'm doing this for you. Remember this, Lord. If you were to go with me to Colossians chapter 3 to close up. A passage we've been going to a lot. But it bears repeating. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3. Remind ourselves of verse 17 and verses 23 and 24. Verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God the Father through Him. Whatever you do, it's all for the Lord. Nehemiah says, I could demand more. I'm not. I'm doing it for Him. And verse 23, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. That's what it's about. That's who we serve. We serve the Lord Christ. Nehemiah did not do this for his own glory, for his own attention. He did it because it's just the right thing to do. I tell my boys all the time, if they come up to me and they start complaining about this, complaining about that, and I just say, how about we just do the right thing? If we just do the right thing, it will be okay. I'll say this also. We're Christians. Like, Let's act like Christians and just do the right thing. Can you imagine if we just kept it that simple? For the rest of this day, the rest of this week, the rest of your life, you just say, I'm just going to do the right thing because I have a fear of God. I'm just going to act like a Christian because I have a fear of God. So therefore, if that action, that word, that whatever does not line up with God's word, does not bring him glory, then I'm not going to do it because I fear the Lord because that's what matters more than anything. Anybody have any final questions, comments here about anything before we close up with a word of prayer? All right, hey, would you stand with me? Let's pray this into our lives.
Lord, it's one thing to say it, it's another thing to do it. Um, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Help us to fear you, Lord, in a healthy, pious way of just realizing you are God and we are not. Lord, help us to walk in that truth, help us to walk in that path, and whatever words, whatever actions, whatever deeds, let it all go through the filter of you, because we fear you more than anything else. We love you, we praise you, and Lord, help us as well too, just like with Nehemiah, when the anger comes, that we can respond in a biblical manner, Lord, in all we do and say. We thank you and we praise you, we lift this up in your name, amen. You guys have a good week and God bless.